Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Before we turn to your essential political analysis for this week, I want to tell you about our wonderful partners at The Resident, where all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with quintessential British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without The Resident, you might not get to experience London. And without The Resident, we wouldn't be here on Whitehall Sources. Whitehall Sources, your essential, essential politics podcast, is brought to you in association with The Resident. is starting to work. Now, some said this problem was insoluble, but in the five months since I launched the plan, crossings are now down 20% compared to last year. That's right, crossings are down 20%. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. Thanks very much for being with us. We are recording on Tuesday, the 6th of June. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for following. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for tweeting. And thank you for emailing as well, by the way. Uh, a couple of emails to come uh, today, including, in fact, let's say hello to Kirsty first of all. Kirsty Buchanan, former advisor to Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. Good afternoon. You've dragged me out of working in the garden, which is oh, most yeah. disobliging of you. What were you doing? Were you weeding? I hate weeding. I was, no, I was doing my day job. Oh. <laughs> I was, oh, I was I rewriting a press notice that was, you know, not fit for purpose. Sorry, I misunderstood. <laughs> I thought you were manual labouring in the garden. Sorry, I I, uh, I understand. No, I'm afraid mastectomies and mowing the lawn doth not a oh, good partnership course. make. <laughs> yes, absolutely <laughs> fair. Uh, <laughs> and it's a great pleasure as well to welcome Stuart Wood to the podcast this week. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Callum. Hello, Kirsty. It's great. I can't say I'm in the garden. I'm wearing a tie here, so I clearly am <laughs> not a gar- in my gardening mode at the moment. I wasn't sure if you might want your full title, Baron Wood of Anfield, um, to welcoming you onto the podcast for the first time. I don't know how you feel about titles and things. 
I'm generally against it unless it's in the service of getting an upgrade on an aeroplane. Then I'm very happy to use it. That's when I. That's about the only time I try and dangle my OBE as well. <laughs> Hotel upgrades, airline yeah. upgrades. Yeah. Um, Stuart, welcome. It's so good to have you here. Um, Delighted to be here. Thanks we, for inviting me. We always start uh, with a with a new person uh, just to get a bit of a rundown of your CV. Uh, what have you done? Who have you done it with? And when was it? Well, I was, I'm an academic. I'm a nerdy academic who taught at Oxford University, and I accidentally drifted into politics when one, one day in 1995, I wrote a letter when I'd had a couple of drinks to Tony Blair saying, you've got no policies. I'm a young academic. Why don't I help you? And he wrote back and we met for a cup of tea. And I, after that, I basically drifted into the labor fold. And um, I worked for Gordon Brown for 10 years, seven years at the Treasury when things were going pretty well. And then three years when he was prime minister, when things went quite well, quite difficult, let's put it that way. And then I worked and then I ran Ed Miliband or helped run Ed Miliband's campaign for leader, which we accidentally won uh, in 2010 and then worked for him for five years and was in the shadow cabinet. Great. So that's my gosh, that's my potted political history. That's really helpful. Well, it's great to have you here. Absolutely. Just as a sort of starting out point, what is your what is your kind of assessment as we as we sit here at the beginning of June 2023 uh, with a general election on the not distant horizon? Are Labour well-placed at this point, would you say? Well, I'd say not bad, not bad. Um, I think it's been, an it's been an incredibly difficult time to be in government the last few years. Uh, but being in opposition has been no laugh either, because partly because you get starved of attention, partly because the nature of the political opposition is changing so quickly from Theresa May to Boris Johnson to Liz Truss to Rishi Sunak through the crises of COVID economic crisis and Ukraine. I mean, the, the, if Keir Starmer had set out his stall three years ago and defined himself against what he was facing then and the moment we face as a country, he'd have to have flushed it down the toilet and started again by now. Mm. So in that sense, I think, I mean, he is, let's face it, very risk averse, very tactically cautious, hasn't set out a kind of vision or a, a philosophy. And that frustrates a lot of people in the Labour Party. And sometimes it, it frustrates me. But there is the fact that events are changing so fast that it's not a bad position to be in. However, that's the weakness that he has to cement. And um, that's that's where the focus has to be from now on. And everyone inside and outside the party wants and needs him to do that. And I think that's the, that's the real challenge that he faces from now on. It's really interesting. We'll talk a lot more about Keir Starmer on today's episode because he's been speaking at the GMB Union, at their uh, sort of national congress, their annual conference get together. So he's been doing that today um, on day of recording. So we'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, Kirsty, I was just going to mention this email from Olivia following last week's um, episode in which you, well, you gave us a bit of a guided tour of some of your political tat the various mugs and things that you've picked up from party conferences. I gave you a chilling insight into my inner nerd, yes. <laughs> and Olivia's emailed, Hello to all from across the pond. Uh, loved Kirsty's conference mug souvenir roundup last week. What mug were you using last week? It was In Liz We Truss, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah, a, <laughs> yeah. An absolute diamond. Um, uh, Olivia says, Sending you a photo of my own, which I must stress was purchased ironically, but which now I think is something of a niche collector's item. I wonder how much it would fetch these days. It's a, it's a white mug, and in a sort of one big love heart, surrounded by many other love hearts, is, are the words, I love, and then beneath that, Theresa May. Um, so there you are. You don't have that one in your collection, do you, Kirsty? I don't. I'm quite envious, actually. I mean, I would never have got it, ironically. I would have got it absolutely on purpose. And <laughs> I note that, you know, uh, Theresa May has gained sort of Yas Queen status in recent years because <laughs> what has followed makes us yearn for what was, right? But yeah, um, well. 
Uh, yes, I heart Theresa May. I also heart Chris Mason. So, you know. oh yes, our, uh, Stuart, you don't know. You might not know about this in our podcast. No. We're, we're big fans of Chris Mason, uh, the BBC's political ah. editor. Yeah, who actually took part in one of our Christmas episodes, didn't he? Which was very good of him um, last Christmas. Uh, but good... I, I agree. I'm a big fan. I'm actually a fan of Theresa May too. I think Theresa May fulfills one of the important things about prime ministers, which is the first act you do when you're not prime minister, is crucial. And in her case, she went back to the back benches and went back into public service. And I think. Yeah, it may not be any solace because it was a very tricky time to be prime minister. She had a torrid time. But I think she gets a lot of respect for going back into the ranks and sort of digging down and, and starting, in, you know, back where she started as an MP and doing it all over again. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, respected yeah. across the aisle, to be honest. Yeah, quite. And nobody, nobody Boris Liz likes a backseat driver, do they? But um, <laughs> uh, the other two are proving slightly harder to just mm. go back and mind their own business. I saw Boris speaking okay. in the Commons this week, wasn't he? He he was doing some sort of um, oh, some sort of chat creative. this week. I th- am I right? Am I or have I imagined it? Maybe it was a rerun. <laughs> Maybe well, hey, I think it's isn't it? Unless I'm going insane, isn't it recess? Oh no, uh, it was last week. Uh, I mean, that was last insane. week. No, so it was. I'm was, sorry. When you're ill, everything just blurs into <laughs> every worry. week. Blurs into <laughs> he was talking about levelling so. up. He was talking about levelling up. I think um, potentially. Oh well, you know, it's nice to see him uh, give a speech for free. <laughs> Very I know. Good. Maybe maybe they'll charge at the door for for the Commons when he gets. My favourite journalist line of last week was Kay Burley one morning when Boris was furious about all this WhatsApp uh, controversy, mm. um, and uh, Kay Burley said, "Oh, Boris Johnson's source close to Boris Johnson says he's absolutely livid. He's currently in Las Vegas." And I thought that's a p- absolutely perfect two sentences about Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister. Oh, my word. I mean, goodness me. Uh, right, well, great to have you both here, Stuart and Kirsty, throughout the podcast. So, yes, we'll come to Keir Starmer in a bit. First, let's start with Rishi Sunak, uh, who is off to Washington, D.C. this week. Indeed, he is off uh, heading there on Tuesday evening uh, for his first bilateral with President Joe Biden in the U.S. Capitol. And it seems that really the focus of the day is going to be on artificial intelligence, um, which Rishi Sunak's already suggested he might try to set up some sort of international agency for the oversight of artificial in- intelligence in London. Um, so that might come up um, uh, with Joe Biden, I should I should think. Uh, first of all, um, should we just consider the importance of this? Um, we place quite a lot of significance on these sorts of trips, Kirsty. Are, are we right to do that? Is this important? Uh, yeah, look, we have a, uh, you know, a special relationship with um, uh, the United States. Uh, that over time, you know, ebbs and flows a bit, but basically, you know, fundamentally it doesn't really change. There is an opportunity there for Rishi Sunak at least to try and lay some of the groundwork for uh, either a sector trade deal or, you know, push a little bit further on some warm words of a eventual trade deal, although uh, I believe that when I see it, but, you know, um, and there's, uh, you know, there's plenty of other uh, issues that I think we touched on last week that he needs, uh, you know, the power punch of the United States president to get behind, which is, you know, some of the global threats that are facing us around, uh, you know, uh, mass immigration caused by climate change increasingly around AI um, around climate action itself. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw Rishi Sunak trying to take some of those uh, arguments to the European political community, which was Macron's baby last week, and now he's going to take it to the United States because, you know, fundamentally, you know, uh, 
very little is going to get done on a global stage that you know, the United States isn't allowed to put heft and, more importantly, money behind. Mm-hmm. Stuart, come in on this. I know that you um, covered foreign policy, didn't you, with, uh, with Prime Minister Gordon Brown and a bit for Ed Miliband as well. Yeah, well, obviously I was in a shadow position for Ed, but yeah, for Gordon Brown, it was a, it was the time of the economic crash, and we also had two presidents. We had the end of Bush and the beginning of Obama. So, I mean, look, I think these visits. I mean, look, the U.S. is about to enter an election period, um, and of course, so is the U.K. So, I, I, I'm not being cynical, but the main reason I think Rishi Sunak wants to go, of course, there'll be important things to announce on policy, and I suspect some sort of task force on AI will emerge from, from this in some way, for example. But I think the main thing is you, you want your prime minister, particularly a newish prime minister, to be seen with an American president looking comfortable uh, with our, as Kirsty says, our most important ally talking about the big issues that the, that the world addresses. And that's what this is all about. Um, we, had the, we had the different kind of issue when Gordon Brown was prime minister because he, this was after the Iraq war and George Bush was still in the White House and the Labour Party hated George Bush. Mm. And Gordon tried to do this sort of difficult combination, not for the first and only time, uh, of putting a bit of distance between him and Blair's relationship with Bush while still trying to get cosy with Bush. We actually had a very secret meeting with Bush before Gordon became prime minister. We flew out ostensibly to have a meeting with one of his advisors and Bush happened to wander in the room in in a highly rehearsed, choreographed way. And we had an hour with Bush. And the reason for that was that both Blair's team and Bush's team were really worried that Gordon and Bush wouldn't hit it off. Um, in fact, they actually got on much better than you might you might have thought. So, th- these personal things. I know it, it, you always get people on TV and um, diplomats on TV in particular saying, "Oh, the chemistry is really crucial." Actually, the personal relationship can be important in t- in, cr- in crunch moments. And when the economic crisis hit, the fact that they had a decent relationship became quite important for a couple of of big calls. So, I think look, it's always a good thing for our prime minister to go there and have a. A productive meeting. Yeah, and it is there. There has been a bit of a narrative, Kirsty, hasn't there, about uh, Rishi Sunak's just good at this sort of thing. He's good at the chemistry. He's good at meeting people and sort of building that bond. And is certainly, uh, dare I say it, more respected globally than uh, Liz Truss or Boris Johnson were in the last couple of years. Yeah, look, it is part of 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 the building up of the the brand of the grown ups are back in charge of Number Ten. Mm. Uh, he is trying to both. Uh, rebuild uh, Britain's uh, somewhat shattered uh, image on the global stage. Um, And he's also trying to repair relationships that were strained to breaking point by um, uh, Brexit and our departure from the European Union in such brutal fashion. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, so that's that. And the other thing that's important, I think, to bear in mind, Abda Botton, who's the uh, director of comms at Number Ten. Now was brought in by Rishi Sunak. She's uh, a broadcast journalist by trade, uh, and she knows the power of of images, and delivers packages in a you know in a clever and grown up fashion. As opposed to mm. Liz Truss going, "Here's me under a you know a Union Jack umbrella outside Sydney Harbour or whatever." But you know, th- and this is part and parcel of that. I mean, one of the images which. You know, will stick in the mind for a long time. I think is that that big, you know, warm embrace between Zelensky and Sunak as Zelensky got off the helicopter, and all of this builds into this package of, uh, you know, Prime Minister flying the flag for Britain, going out and being respected and delivering for the UK on a global stage, which. Mm after last year's psychodrama is, you know, uh, devoutly to be wished, I think. 
I think that's right. I think the other thing, building what Kirsty said, I think that, that Rishi Sunak basically is walking into the room with President of the United States in the Oval Office, and above his head will be an imaginary sentence saying, "Hello, I'm Rishi Sunak, and I'm not Liz Truss or Boris Johnson," because that's <laughs> that is a really crucial part of his uh, of his brand. And uh, you've already seen with other leaders, with Ursula von der Leyen, with with other leaders, that they are so thankful we've got a. You know, I'm not a fan, obviously, of Rishi Sunak's politics, but we've got a grown-up prime minister at the very least from an international point of view. And that's a big. It's a really stressful time, by the way, these visits. Yeah, these, I was they say. were being prepared for six weeks, seven, eight weeks, maybe longer. The ambassador will be worried you, because you're totally right, Kirsty. It is all about the TV moments, really, and you're therefore at the you know the, the mercy of Biden making some remark which will go down badly or something going wrong, or you, you just don't quite know what will happen. And then there'll be this absolutely bizarre media obsession with things like the gifts that you bring mm. and the gifts you get back we had a nightmare because we 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 had the most thoughtful gift in history even if i do say so myself which was <laughs> we we created this wooden pencil holder of a president obama to put on his desk in the oval office which was made from a wood the wood of a, of a, of a ship in the 19th century which was combating slavery so we mm. thought this was a perfect perfect gift we put so much effort into it and he gave us a plastic bag with 25 dvds in it (laughs) (laughs) which i still have on my shelf um so yeah you can't even play them in it for those of your listeners and viewers who remember the dvds um the the region one region two were different kind of uh different playing system so american dvds couldn't play easily in the uk so that's why i ended up with them because mine could what? anyway the point is that the point is that for the for the next few hours the only thing the press wanted to ask us about was the bloody gift mm. uh, and the fact that we had a thoughtful gift and we just given been given this bunch of dvds and it was such a problem that on the plane on the way back the the president of the united states called gordon brown through the cockpit of the plane through wow. the radio system the cockpit to talk to gordon to say i'm really sorry about the press coverage of all that because he obviously had seen it himself, being so, so it, it got it got to a terrible state, really, for such a trivial, small issue. But it was part of the narrative of the prime minister Gordon not being able to do anything right and and all that. Well, but anyway, my point my point is all these things get bundled together: the really, really important stuff and the totally trivial stuff. <laughs> yeah, and it's also symbolic of the relationship, isn't it? It's a special relationship, but it's certainly not an equal one. That's right. Exactly. That's a good point. That's right. I've got, I'm just thinking of other moments. Theresa May holding hands with Donald Trump. That was a oh. that was a thing, wasn't it? Yes, I forgot about. <laughs> look, I mean, it, look when you when you're trying to arrange, you know, a, a trip which has got Donald Trump involved in it, it doesn't matter how meticulously you plan it. Mm. There is basically a big orange hand grenade waiting to <laughs> yeah. blow up at any point, and all you can do is grit your teeth and get to the other side of it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the holding the hands was was one thing, which at least kind of mercifully overshadowed the bit where they stood next to each other after she'd held his hand to help him down the steps, mm-hmm. um, where he proceeded to go on about what a great guy Boris Johnson was in front of her, which, <laughs> not for the first time, if nothing else, was just spectacularly rude. Oh, well, yes. um, but not quite as rude as walking in front of her late majesty. But, uh, yeah. you know, but like I say, he was always just uh, put your tin hat on and get to the other side. I think one thing that always strikes me, um, and this is really for both of you, is is the extent to which actually the deals, the substance of these trips, aside from the gifts and aside from the handholding, the substance of these trips actually develops among advisors and aides and, the, you know, having conversations over there somewhere before the sort of presidential slash prime ministerial moment. Was that your experience, Stuart? In, in part of the choreography, in the build-up, in the weeks building up, was there a kind of working towards what will we announce? What is the substance of this trip? Oh, you know, it was it was exhausting and and quite fraught because of course every senior diplomat 
and civil servant wants a piece of the action. They want their slice of the moment between the prime minister and the president. So the agenda is massive in the civil service. And on top of that, you've got the political demands, particularly as you get near elections. You know, you want, in our day, you wanted to be a good photo with Obama, right? Because mm. that was gold dust for you politically, or uh, I'm sure it wasn't quite the same with Donald Trump <laughs> <laughs> for Theresa May. But so, so you've got all these different agendas and, 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 and balancing those in such a short space of time is absolutely crucial. Plus, you've got the embassy out there who, you know, who are, who are fantastic, but they always want to, you know, pretty in an authoritarian way, choreograph exactly how it should go. And um, so you've got all these different behind the scenes stresses and strains about the agenda and what you should talk about. Plus, you've got the prime minister or president themselves wanting to talk about George Bush, for example. Gordon used to go into a meeting with almost everyone whether it was the owner of Wraith Rovers Football Club or the President of the United States. And he would basically tell them how the world economy should be uh, addressed, the problems <laughs> right, the world economy okay. should be addressed. And he'd have these... And George Bush used to say things like, I don't want to talk about economics, Gordon. Uh, you talk, talk about that with my economics team. Oh, let's talk about other things. Really? <laughs> Gordon didn't know what to do after that. <laughs> so it was... It was a, so you have all these little tensions as well as the pre-planned ones all thrown into the pot. In fact, just thinking about it brings me out in hives because it's such a stressful thing. Well, funnily enough, me too. You know, we went to a, a hashtag me too moment. Uh, we went to um, Austria and uh, in the morning, you know, we'd gone through the sort of media and we'd briefed the Prime Minister about the choreography of, uh, you know, the photo op with Kurtz, who was then the Chancellor of Austria. I don't know if you remember Kurtz. I was, do. Very young, tall, mm. thin, problematic fellow. Um, anyway, so, and you know, and I'd thought, said, oh, you know, and, and Prime Minister, you know, then we'll, we'll go into X room and the journalist will be brought, you know, the pool photographer will be brought in and then there will be a photo and then we will take them out and then you and the Chancellor will be free to talk, blah, 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 blah. Uh, all sounding like I'm, you know, totally in control and totally in charge of this thing. <laughs> they get into this room. I'm about to talk to the, um, you know, to, to signal to someone to bring in this, you know, this pool camera. And uh, uh, says, oh, you know, everybody come in uh, without any warning. And the entire, like, press pack burst into this room. And it's absolute bedlam, you know, oh and then we can't push them out because, you know, you, you can't lose your temper or, or, or get physical or anything. It's... Uh, there's many a press trip where you can hear me going, could you just stand back, sir? Could you get back, sir? And I'm gently trying to push some journo back a bit. Um, and then they just feel completely filled into this room. So then they backed out into the balcony, which is where they were supposed to have a private conversation, and all the press came with them and spilled out to the balcony. So what yeah. Devil of a time trying to trying to get them out again. So um, uh, Great for the journalists. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so, so the biggest problem isn't, isn't the relationship with the age, although mm. they do, you know, they do, you know, they've got, you know, their own agenda. Their agenda isn't to make your prime minister to look good. It's the agenda to make their leader look good. Um, and those aren't always aligned um, motivations, but they're not the biggest problem. Usually the biggest problem is, is you know, can be the leader that you're visiting or hosting. Mm. It's really fascinating. We had, a, we, had a, we had a moment, very briefly, we had a moment where um, 
a foreign leader, quite important one, came to Downing Street, and there was a moment in the discussion which was about nuclear-related issues. It was quite important and sensitive, and we had a big discussion for the weeks before about who could be in the room, and about three, four people were allowed in the room. As that part of the discussion begins, everyone left apart from the three or four people. Just as the conversation began, the doors of that Downing Street room swung open, and Gordon's children ran in. <laughs> and then this sort of entourage of people who were supposed to be in charge, and the kids followed them, and then we're having this discussion with about 10 people who definitely had not been security cleared in the room. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre. I love Best it. Best laid plans. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Gosh, they're just, they just chaotic, absolutely chaotic, these sorts of things. But, you know, they are trying to achieve things. Kirsty, as you've already alluded to, there's kind of, uh, Sunak is in pursuit of a digital trade deal worth billions, reports political while he's stateside. The Times says that Biden's likely to offer a new critical minerals agreement to try to help UK car manufacturing. Uh, also, Ukraine, I suppose, is going to be on the agenda. That's the other thing that's bubbling around, isn't it? Um, even today, the news of a counter-offensive really getting into into action in Ukraine uh, depends what source you're reading. But it sounds like there might be a bit of movement in Ukraine, uh, and so that's surely on the agenda too. But but artificial intelligence is up there, AI, which has become the talk of the town in the last few weeks. Um, and I just wonder if this is if this is something that is ripe for a, a new era of some sort of international cooperation, Kirsty. Can I just be uh, forgiven for allowing a little bit of a yas boo sucks moment here? Always, so, always. Uh, when I was uh, uh, with my good colleagues desperately trying to sell the Prime Minister's Brexit deal back in the day, um, I used to make an argument with many uh, centre-right journalists who were you know, deeply, deeply opposed to compromising over Brexit that actually, look, Brexit isn't an event, it's an evolution. Mm. And, you know, once you are out, you are out. And all the emerging technologies will be able to create our own trade deals and forge our own path with the new partners. You know, the traditional industries of which we were, our trade is interwoven with the EU over 50 years... Um, they are being replaced by new industries, by renewables. By, and AI was the one that... Um, you know that I always used to cite because it, you know, along with you know the the you know the the spectacular boom in you know new technologies for renewable energy, it was self-evidently one of those sort of places where you can, uh, you know, you it will come and you can forge your own path. But uh, yes, yeah, so to all of those MPs on both sides of the mm. of the house who thwarted a compromised Brexit so that we could have the country could be inflicted on three years of Tory psychodrama. Um, this was precisely the point we were trying to make, you know, that, that you know, relationships aren't an aspect uh, and trade isn't an aspect. It grows and evolves. And uh, and that's uh, and this is evidence of that. It does make me laugh, though. So, you know, look, you know, Sunak is a, you know, is a tech head um, and he has high ambitions, as many prime ministers do who are tech heads to make Britain the kind of global leader in some incredibly complex new industry. Yesterday I was listening to a, a series on the radio, um, a terrible story about a woman who had taken her own life because all her benefits had been stopped because she was seriously ill uh, and hadn't turned up for a review of her work capability assessment. And then I see in the House of Commons today there's a, there's a debate, a backbench debate, about the appalling death of Errol Graham, who was a man who had mental health problems. And because he didn't respond to a review on his uh, employment uh, support allowance, 
all his benefits were stopped and he starved to death. Mm. He had no water, no heating, no lighting, no food, no benefits. And to hear, you know, to sit on a grand stage like the United States and talk about Britain leading the global charge of AI and standing up to, you know, the implications of that and terrorism and those that don't respect the international rule-based order of things like Russia and China, when we can't even get our support agencies to be able to share data and talk to each other, mm. I just find, you know, <laughs> just bitterly, bitterly ironic, really. Yeah. Um, so it's a kind of, you know, g- good luck on that. But I was listening, you know, one of the things that you know, people always talk about the generation shift, you know, f- for us, the most uh, important kind of political moment was the fall of the Berlin Wall for the next generation uh, it was uh, the bank collapse. Um, and actually, when you start to think about the implications of AI, it, you know, and the bad faith actors and the potential damage that that will cause, you know, in the hands of those that don't respect uh, law, it is a, a chilling reminder that actually, uh, you know, that whilst the younger generation don't really respect the points about liberal democracy, uh, actually liberal democracy should be a bulwark against mm. these sorts of emerging threats. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's ever been more important than it, than it is now, actually. That's a really I interesting know, thought. Uh, you know, thank you. No, <laughs> I try. Honestly, I know, I know. It is really interesting. And it's, 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 it's fascinating because of what you highlight about domestic technological disadvantage, trying to then get out ahead of a kind of international um, sort of technological advance. I noted as well, Stuart, that Labour today, uh, Shadow Digital Secretary Lucy Powell um, was going to, due to speak at the Tech UK conference, saying Labour would put the UK at the forefront of global AI regulation. We would act quickly to set the standards for safe and responsible AI, influencing international regulation, attracting investment from those firms, looking for guardrails and certainty, and protecting workers and consumers at home. So I'd, is this is there kind of consensus cross-party, it, it sounds like, that AI is, is as Kirsty describes, a, a kind of emerging threat that needs attention? Yeah, I think, I think uh, Kirsty's right. It's an issue that on the doorstep, I think most people will think it's not the issue that, of the day, but it's an absolutely massive issue. And it's very difficult when you've got a ma- an issue which is tr- going to transform the way we live our lives, and yet people think it's beside the point given the other crises we face. I don't think there's any any profit that comes from Labour trying to pick holes in the government's approach, partly because we don't know what the government's approach is yet, partly because I suspect the government, Rishi Sunak and Joe Biden, will announce some kind of approach, which, if not exactly on the same page, will be similar and maybe joint in some way. Um, And, you know, it is an area like in telecoms where the UK has, you know, a pretty good reputation of intellectual thought leadership and regulatory practice. There's no reason why we couldn't be some sort of leader of thought on, on this challenge in the future. So all of that, I think, I think the other thing is that whatever you think of Brexit, there has been a challenge for people who are, and for Britain in general, but particularly people who are pro-Brexit, to show that Brexit is not equivalent to retreating from the world stage. And if AI can be the opportunity for a Conservative Prime Minister to show that they're engaging and bringing people together in thought leadership, I think that's a good thing as well from a, from a mm. UK point of view. Mm. Also, from the from the government's point of view, it has the useful benefit of creating a distracting alternative future threat to the country than climate action. And I think you'll see the government concentrate on that, be kind of sotto voce about its climate action work and allow, you know, 
some centre-right uh, kind of thinkers and commentaria to start to turn ESG and climate action under Labour into a wedge issue mm. in the mm. run-up to... Um, that's right. In the run up to the next election, of which we can talk more about that when we get to talk about Starmer. But, mm. you know, I, I would be surprised if some of this isn't about the government going, look over there at this threat. And no, I think that's right. It's yesterday's apocalypse. I mean, you're already seeing it from uh, the Daily Mail's attack on Labour on, on its uh, green agenda and the cost of it and the wisdom of it. So I think you're right. I think there's definitely a, there'll be a sense that the Conservatives are on to the next threat that we face and that the climate change one is uh, is less important. That's the way they'll try and pitch it. Is there a risk, Kirsty, that it detracts from Rishi Sunak's five, five priorities that he set out at the start of the year, having inflation, economy growing, debt falling, cutting NHS waiting lists and, and stopping the small boats? Oh, oh. Baron, Baron Wood of Anfield. I've got to go calls. and vote now. Juicy I've calls. got eight minutes to sprint across to vote. I'm so sorry. No, not at all. Good luck. <laughs> Democracy in action. Have fun. <laughs> We'll catch you right. on the other side. <laughs> there we go. Yes, that is the division bell. Division bell. <laughs> There's a division bell for you. Lovely. We love getting that on the pod. Um, yes. So, Kirsty, uh, th- that thought. Do you think? Do you think it's a distraction from those five five priorities? I mean, for the prime minister, or, or is this actually valid? You know, as a kind of uh, uh, not announced sixth priority in some way. Uh, n- no, I think it's it's part of of something slightly separate to that, which is about the overall, like I say, the overall impression that you know there are serious grown up people back in charge at number ten. Mm. It's more of a uh, you know a blue water, uh, you know, between Sunak and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss than it is uh, anything else. And the I don't think it stops the the cut through of those five pledges. We saw. Uh, the day before him, you know, doing the whole White Cliffs of Dover, you know, I am determined, I'm throwing more and more money at stopping the small boats and, you know, it's beginning to have some impact. So I don't think, um, uh, you know, I don't think we'll see any let up in, you know, the hammering home of those uh, those five key messages because, you know, that is, you know, that is the cut through, that is what, they believe that they can show at least signs of of going in direction uh, by the time they get to the next election. So this is about saying, yeah, you know, look, we're, you know, we are treated seriously again. I'm a I'm a serious politician on the global stage, and uh, at home, these are my priorities because they're the people's priorities, and I will mm. deliver at home and be treated with respect and, you know, like a grown up abroad. You mentioned the uh, Dover trip this week. Do you care that Rishi Sunak got a helicopter for 74 miles? Does that bother you? I have to say it doesn't bother no, me look, in the slightest. To... I think I'm quite excited uh, at the look, idea I, of it being cool. I have to uh, commute on a train. Um, and, you know, the Prime Minister is quite a busy person. Yes. Um, and... Uh, you know, having made the Trundley trip, my mother lives on the North Kent coast, um, and having made the Trundley trip on the North Kent, uh, I think it's Southern, uh, many, many times, uh, it would be ridiculous <laughs> for the Prime Minister to try and get there on on a train. Um, so, no, I don't care is mm. the uh, is the honest answer. Of, of all the things that bedevil this country and the globe, you know, extremely busy leaders getting in the most convenient form of transport yeah 
not yeah. on top of my priority I'm, list. I'm quite up for it as well, I have to say. I think there's something quite... You have to make it glamorous. He's literally the Prime Minister. Get him in a helicopter. Get him there. Get him, get him and do the job. And look, I don't, I don't, I don't care how, um, how long you stay in government. You know, if you're in that police convoy and you're whizzing through the streets of central London and the, and the, and the police outriders are stopping the traffic and it's all everybody, you know, and you're, and everybody's looking at this convoy going through or you're or the boarding the, the plane to go abroad. And, you know, it is cool. Uh, you know, let's not, let's not pretend it's not, you know, I used to go on trips and then get to sit in the jump seat behind the pilot That's because cool. that was my treat, you know, because everyone knows how much I, and the Prime Minister was, oh, you know, are you, are you going to go and sit in the jump seat? Yes, yes, I am, you know. <laughs> and I absolutely loved it, you know, sitting there with the pilots, listening to them talk, looking at the Alps as we flew back from... Uh, it's cool. Let's not pretend it isn't. That is it's so fantastic. Cool. What's it the... is an incredible privilege, and it's also just really awesome to do some of that stuff. What is the motorcade like when you're, when you're kind of in, in, the, in that convoy of cars that you describe blasting through a city like London? Uh, that bit of it is, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you'll sit there pretending, well, you're not pretending, you are looking at your phone because if you're a spad, that's all you ever do is just peer <laughs> at your phone yeah, constantly to see what latest issue has blown up on social media. Um, but you're trying to pretend that it's all, you know, that it's all, I'm just, I do this all the time and I'm not, you know, but secretly uh, this is hella cool. Mm. Um, like I say, all the traffic stops, everybody looks at you, quite a lot of people wave, quite a lot of people flip you the bird, you know. Um, it's just it's just a gloriously brilliant experience. And if I did it a million times, I would never have tired of it, not once. It was just, it was something. The only time I ever really had an issue, we were in Northern Ireland mm. and we were travelling to uh, meet someone. I, sorry, my, my memory is is escaping me who it was but it was a good hour and a half trip down some seriously windy road oh, really? <laughs> um and i am not great uh on you know in, in long car journeys mm. if i haven't taken a travel sickness belt no and for some inexplicable reason i hadn't and i'm never going to be physically sick mm -hmm. but almost from five minutes out i felt sick oh, no. and it was a very <laughs> Very, very twisty roads, country lane, lots of potholes, very long journey. Yeah, no way. Um, and we got to the end of them like, you know, yeah, do you want anything to eat? I'm like, no, no, really not. You know. <laughs> Keep that food away from uh, me. I, uh, yeah. I once made best friend Chris stand with me um, on the opposite side of Lafayette Park from the, from the White House because I knew that Donald Trump's motorcade would arrive, um, and I didn't fully anticipate how long it would take. We were standing there for an hour at about nine o'clock one night when we were in Washington, D.C., to await the arrival... <laughs> <laughs> await the arrival of President Trump's motorcade and then we were probably about mm, I don't know how, how big is it maybe about 200 or 300 metres away from it and it just sort of swished in the gate to the White House and that was it and he was like 
right, can we go for a pint now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the moral yeah, of the go. story is never go on holiday with a political nerd, right? Yeah, especially and, you know. not to Washington, D.C. That was a disaster <laughs> waiting to happen. Uh, right, uh, Stuart Wood will be back with us in a few moments and we will assess Keir Starmer's speech to the GMB union. You might not have noticed it. We had to work hard to pick out the top lines. Um, so we'll, we'll discuss that in a few minutes. Stay with us. By the time you finish these ad adverts and the sponsor message and all of that stuff, Stuart will be back with us and we'll talk about Sir Keir Starmer. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. you thought you'd got rid of me didn't you well here i am in the break as well you are welcome here at whitehall sources we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism so we have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about the resident which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations providing heartfelt hospitality i'm pleased to say their story checks out actually Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a code name? The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. This is Whitehall Sources. Thanks very much for being with us this week. We've got Kirsty Buchanan, and I'm pleased to say Stuart Wood has completed his democratic duties and is back. Stuart, how was it? Was it exhilarating? It was tough. I fought against the odds, but I managed to walk through the lobby and vote. So, well we done. Go. Well done. Something of which we could all be proud. <laughs> and we won. Oh, well, there we are. Uh, and what was it? What were you voting on? On the retained EU law bill about the abolition of all uh, laws under the EU to oh, be replaced yeah. by future regulations. First time I ever voted in the Lords, I, I was like a 
a kid coming to London for the first time, you know, I had no idea where I was. And I walked through and asked a Tory peer which way I should vote. And he said, come with me, young man. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I almost walked into the wrong lobby. <laughs> we lost by one vote, I would have been kicked out straight away. <laughs> <laughs> that is dynamite. Uh, right, good. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. It's good to have you there. Uh, thanks as well. Be, by the way, get in touch with your emails, your questions, your, your own analysis as well. Uh, hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address if you want to get in touch. Uh, right, we've done Rishi Sunak abroad. Let's talk about Keir Starmer at home. Um, he's been Keir Starmer's been talking to the GMB union uh, at the annual congress in Brighton. He's had what's been described in The Guardian as a warm reception um, for the party leader. He's promised to use public procurement to help create unionised jobs in the UK, is the top line The Guardian's gone for. Um, he was uh, apparently being challenged by a GMB member from Amazon's Coventry Warehouse, uh, where there have been, um, uh, well, calls to unionise workers, haven't there, in that particular warehouse. Uh, and Keir Starmer said it was a fantastic campaign. Um, I mean, clearly, Stuart, he's speaking to union members in this address. Is there anything in this for the wider, the country at large? I mean, far be it from me to say no about the leader of Labour Party speech, but basically not really. Um, I mean, it, it, it's one of these speeches that you, you, you have to give. It has to go well. There's a lot of formula that you need to do if you're a Labour leader talking to a, a serious senior trade union audience. You have to have, you know, the, the language of it can't be too left-wing Islington-y. It can't be full of socialism and that stuff. Uh, but it also can't be full of... Blairite speak about progressivism and new labor. I, I bet you that speech doesn't say the word progressive or the term new labor at all. Uh, but it will talk about working people and it will recast, not re recast, but it will cast the labor project as essentially for working people. And on the whole, the relationship with the unions is pretty decent, I think. And mm. so the, 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 the speech is a lot of talk about the DNA of the Labour Party being to restore the lot of working people and um, he also needs to say a couple of things which he can then brief overnight as having spoken in a tough way to a union audience because that's part of the strategy for the for the rest of the electorate. Um, you need to hint at an agenda without spelling things out too much because it's important to lay down a couple of markers. So all of those things he did and he, he tackled the controversy at the moment about um, uh, what the GMB said yesterday or the day before that um, the Labour Party shouldn't be giving up on oil and gas mm, too quickly. Exactly. Uh, so he talked in a sufficiently general way to embrace both a sort of more green approach, but also saying we're not going to run down dependence, whatever we think of, of our dependence on oil and gas in the in the very short term. So I think it was one of those speeches which touched a lot of bases and then and then you um, you move on. I don't think it's a, yeah. it's, a, it's not a place where Keir Starmer is going to lay out any roadmap or anything like that. I can't find, I've got the transcript here. I can't find any mentions oh of progressive or new labour. Yeah. I found progression, uh, but that's in the context of a fair pay agreement. Here we are. So we will yeah. strike a fair pay agreement for every care worker in the country. We'll get you around the table and the deal you make will set a new floor, a higher floor with more progression, more training, more rights, better standards, and yes, fairer pay, a fair deal for our carers. That's what people clapped for and that's what labour will deliver. Yeah. Yeah, so just laying a few flat petals on the floor, really, mm. for a union audience, showing that actually Labour will be serious about a, a more coherent approach to strengthening union powers, but without saying what those powers would be. So one of the left of the Labour Party once said to me that the word progressive is only used to describe nasty diseases and terrible music. <laughs> <laughs> and it should, should, never be, should never be used by a Labour politician. Well, that was a classic, <laughs> classic position. That's pretty nice. Um, Kirsty, I'm trying to think if there's a kind of conservative... 
uh, comparison to a sort of union audience that, as Stuart was describing, that you know, this is the speech you have to give. You kind of, you know, drop a few little sweeteners here and there, but it's, it's nothing sort of really concrete or with much depth. Not, not for the prime minister, but increasingly for those that wish to be the next conservative leader. There's any number of mm. of centre right splinter groups that you can go and talk, you know, maximum Tory at. Uh, you know, and all these sorts of things. Sometimes you talk to the room, sometimes you talk over the heads of the room to outside. But mm. if I was a aspirational conservative leader, I'd be making a beeline for, you know, the conservative growth group or conservative democratic, whatever they're called, or the <laughs> People's Front of Judea. I, you know, there's there's so many of them now. I've 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 lost count. Um, but that's probably the the closest thing to uh, an equivalent, I think. Um, I was thinking about this this speech, though, and this whole... Because this is a curtain raiser for this f- another one of Keir Starmer's five missions. That's right. Um, which, you know, whilst they have the benefit of being, you know, comprehensive and well thought out, they do not have the benefit of having any comms cut through whatsoever. Um, but if I was going to give them a little bit of unasked for advice... Always. I would very quickly drop the word green from your green prosperity plan and just call it your prosperity plan. Mm. You've got a Labour, uh, a potential Labour government that, you know, that has, you know, said that it wants to sweep aside, you know, you know, planning rules and regulations and petty foggy bureaucracy that's standing in the way of good new jobs in Britain and new industry. So it wants to sweep aside that. It wants to build new industries and create good, high-quality jobs in every region of the UK. And it wants to grow the UK economy, right? As opposed to the Conservatives, who are too frightened of their own backbenches to do anything about planning reform at the moment because they can't get it past their own MPs. They have no plan for jobs or growth. um, And they're too busy cleaning up their own mess uh, to start to actually concentrate on growing the economy. So that's kind of where I would position the prosperity plan. And I would drop the word green because the more you create it as a, you know, as a, as a climate action, you know, they think there's two virtuous arms to this, right? There's the climate action virtuous arm and there's the job creation virtuous arm. Unless you want to make this a wedge issue, drop that bit of it. Let's just take that as a given and just concentrate on this being a means to an end. If I'm looking for a job... You know, I don't care if it's uh, in a wind farm factory or a car manufacturer. I just want a good quality job, right? It has the upside of saving the planet. Nice. But actually, you're going to walk yourself into a wedge, you know, a comms wedge trap if you carry on banging both of these drums. Do you think the election will be fought on green credentials of either party. This was a a kind of conversation I was having informally after the North Sea comments that appeared in the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago from Keir Starmer that have been somewhat sort of rolled back by Anna Sarwar, the Scottish Labour leader, among others. I'm just wondering to what extent... the climate crisis, climate emergency will play a part. I think cost of living and, you know, one's own feeling of economic prosperity or otherwise is going to be the dominating factor. But I wonder if what you're saying there, Kirsty, is if you tie them together, but actually... This is, but this is why I say it's yeah. a trap, right? Because in the reality, you know, the Conservative government is committed to the same net zero ambitions that the Labour Party, different timetable, but the same ambitions, and will continue to invest in renewable energy because 
it would be insane not to create better energy security and create new jobs in this. So they'll be doing mm. broad brush, roughly the same things. The big difference is the Conservatives won't talk about it. And like I say, I'm, I'm slightly of the mind that the AI is to is to distract and say, look, this is the real worry, forget this, you know. And then they will allow their commentariat and their outriders to talk about the green levies, the green costs of Labour's green plan, you know, because actually all polling says everybody cares about climate action, but no one right now in a cost of living crisis can afford to pay for it. Exactly. Heat pumps are deeply, deeply, deeply unpopular. Yeah. Electric vehicles are very expensive. There's not enough infrastructure to support them and they don't drive you very far. Mm. So the more that you walk into this being, like I say, an issue around renewables and uh, speeding climate action, the more you're going to walk into that trap of of the Conservative commentariat being able to say, OK, it's easy for the summer to make these pledges, but you, the British public, will be paying for them through the nose. I mean, I'm not sure I agree. With, I'm not sure I agree with Kirsten that, to be honest. I think, I mean, first, <gasps> firstly, I think that you've got... You, Keir Starmer and Labour have to talk about growth in a different way to the Conservatives. Uh, and, and green growth is a way of, of, of showing that you have a different approach. Uh, and I agree the word green is going to be used by the right to say green equals tax, and they have to deal with that. That's totally right. But I think you need to have a quality of a, a labour approach to growth, which is different. You have to set, set, seriously sort of demarket from the way that the Tories would approach it. Secondly, you've got to remember labour has a challenge on its left, it, multiple challenges on its left. In some places it's green, some places it's Liberal Democrat. Some places it's SNP, some places it's Plaid. Uh, and this connects to the, and so they have to shore that up. And the third thing, I don't know if anyone saw the, um, the More In Common, Luke Trill's organisation, More In Common, did a mm. polling on millennials and, um, and the, the hemorrhaging of, of un under 40 support for the Conservative Party, which he as a Conservative supporter himself, I think thought was quite alarming. Um, I think Labour's making a play for under 40s in a big way through this agenda. And I think a retreat on this in some way, which is clearly what the Mail and others are trying to press Labour to do would be a mistake. Now, I think Kirsty's right about the, the terminology should be looked at. I think that's right. But I think I think there has to be an environmental component to the growth strategy in an election where the growth strategy is going to be first and foremost. By the way, one other thing, I think this election coming up will be an election where there isn't a dominant issue because I think particularly Labour wants to segment its message to so many different audiences. One of the advantages of not having set out your your stand of what you stand for is that you can segment your message much more effectively using social media and other, other tools. And I think that's the game that Labour wants to play, whether it can play it or not in an election where the Tories will make it try and make it all about tax, in my view, is an open question. Mm. The issue about you know under 40s turning away from the Conservatives because they um, uh, because they've been let down over capitalism and home ownership, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, yeah. um, and turning to, to to Labour, it is true in uh, value. I'm not sure that converts into votes, um, and because Starmer is. You know, a relatively unknown quantity. My my personal view is, you know, uh, I would stick more on the kind of, uh, you know, we've got a plan for jobs and growth. The Conservatives haven't. They're so busy trying to mop up the mess of the last 13 years or m mop up the mess of the last three years that they haven't actually got a plan. They've got a plan to you know, cross their fingers and hope on inflation, all of that kind of, you, you get the kind of 
tram lines on this. We've got a plan. They haven't. Because if you're trying to be a government in waiting, you need to have a kind of positive vision. Um, and so to some certain extent, you know, you just it's relatively easy to drop the one word in the plan that is a problem for them um, and just call it your prosperity plan um, and push, you know, the push this, you know, we have a thought out agenda. Poor old Rishi Sunak is, you know, trying to mop up the mess of the last three years um, and hope that fits because otherwise, like I say, you know, uh, Starmer's support amongst the public is broad, but it is very shallow um, and a campaign can be a very long event and that broad but shallow support can drain away really quickly. Really, really interesting, Bill. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kirsty. Thank you, Stuart, as well. Thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, really great Pleasure. to have you on. Um, right, good. We'll be back next week with more Whitehall sources. You can subscribe. You can follow if this is your first time with us. Then make sure you stick around. Uh, we'd love to have you there. And you can email in the interim. We'll read your email out on next week's episode. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the best way to get in touch. Uh, we'll be back again next week. So until then, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.